Well, we're in a series called Habits, and we're looking at practices that put us in the way of transformation. And we said that you are what you habitually do. So in other words, your habits are leading you somewhere. And the question is, where are your habits leading you? And so we're asking the question, are there spiritual habits? Are there uh, spiritual practices that you could put in your life that will lead you in the right direction? And there are, and we've been looking at the various uh, ones. And uh, so last week we looked at the habit of gratitude. And uh, this week we're going to look at the habit of silence and solitude. The spiritual practice of silence and solitude. Now, the other, uh, a couple days ago, actually, I was in Kroger, and in Kroger, uh, when I go shopping, it's always my time to listen to podcasts, and so before I go in the store, I put my earbuds in my ear, and I start going through, and I start shopping, and so I was in Kroger, and I, I had just gotten out of the produce section, and all the fruit was in my basket, and, and I, I started going into the poultry and meat section, and, and it was right about there where I got into a really good uh, place in the podcast. I was really getting into it. And, uh, you know, but I, I kind of got, you know, back in the supermarket again, and I uh, pulled some bacon and put it in my cart, went over and, and took some bread out of the, the uh, freezer and put it in my cart, and I kept on going. And as I rounded into the dairy section, I looked down, and there were two big bottles of Coke Zero in my basket. And I thought to myself, I don't drink Coke Zero. Well, this is weird. Did I put them in there? I'm so distracted that I put them in there by accident. And then I, I realized in horror that this was not my cart. <laughs> I had unwittingly stolen somebody else's groceries. And so I, I kind of embarrassingly looked around, and there about uh, way back in the produce section <laughs> was this poor man scratching his head and looking around. <laughs> and so I, as fast as I could, I rolled my cart back to the produce section and said, I am so sorry, I stole your groceries. Listen to this podcast, I was just so distracted. And then, you know, on the way out of the store, I was at the, uh, the checkout counter, and I had my buds back in my ear again. And the man at the counter said, oh, what, what are you listening to? And I said, I'm listening to a podcast, it's really good, it's about how social media distracts us. <laughs> and he said, that's so ironic. And I said, yes, it is, yes, it is. We live in a world of constant distraction and frenetic busyness. And it's not just our, our families and our hobbies and our work and, and all the other things that distract us. I think that in the modern world, here as we're living in, in the digital age, I think it's mostly our, the distraction of iPhones and other electronic devices that keep us constantly busy, that keep us constantly not paying attention. We are living in what economists are calling the attention economy. And so literally thousands of apps and devices are trying to distract you 24-7. Our new normal is what Microsoft researcher Linda Stone calls partial or continual partial attention, which means that we are never really present anywhere. And this has led uh, Tristan Harris, who's a former product philosopher for Google, uh, who's an also a Silicon Valley insider, who left the industry to start a nonprofit for the sole purpose of arguing for the Hippocratic Oath for software designers. And it's because he's been around and he's seen uh, these millennials designing these uh, iPhones there in Silicon Valley. And he knows that they are intentionally engineered for distraction and addiction. And so for many of us, you know, even though we're so busy, even the remaining time that we have left, those remaining, you know, moments of quiet, 
is being crowded out by our Facebook and our iPhones and all the other things that we're doing 24-7. And, you know, that space is getting smaller and smaller, you know. Uh, all those places where we, you used to not be able to connect in an airplane or uh, even out hiking somewhere. I heard there's actually a backpack that's actually set up to plug in your iPhone. So we can literally connect anywhere. And it's causing us to be incredibly distracted. And, you know, I'm not against technology. You know, I, I appreciate FaceTime. I get to talk to my parents long distance. You know, we Skype. They get to look at my children from long distance. I mean, technology is a good thing. I'm not against it. And yet, there are many, many cons to living in the digital age. There are many, many downsides. And I think for, for in many ways, our distraction and our addiction to technology and iPhones and things like that, it's not only uh, causing us to be emotionally unhealthy, which it is. You know, uh, anxiety and busyness and high blood pressure and all this stuff is a result of us being constantly distracted. But th there's more than that. This new lifestyle of distraction and addiction is robbing us of the, listen, of the core human ability to be present to others, ourselves, and to God. And in so doing, it's robbing us of our soul. I read an article in the um, New York Times Magazine, and it was by a, a fascinating um, author. His name is Andrew Sullivan, and it's called I Used to Be a Human Being. And it begins, he's checking himself in a into a meditation center for essentially what is a digital detox. And he puts his iPhone in a basket, and he's going to go without it for a week. And so all through the week, he's, he's writing this essay and, and talking about how he was you know, walking in the woods and, and finally alone with his thoughts, and he's talking all about uh, addiction and, and uh, uh, you know, distraction and all those things. And he ends his article this way. He says, this new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shapeshift under the pressure. The threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget that we have any. And so here's what's going on. Our, our constant distraction, this continual partial attention, it's not only uh, ruining us of our attention spans and our, our giving us anxiety, it is detrimental to our souls. And as Ronald uh, Rollheiser put it, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. And so here's the question I want to ask this morning. Is there a spiritual practice? Is there a spiritual discipline that will set us up to thrive in the digital age? Is there a time-tested habit that will save us from this constant distraction? And yes, there is. It's called silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to um, look at several different scriptures this morning. But what I want to do is I want to go to the life of Jesus. I want to show you how he practiced silence and solitude and how, and how it'll help us. Well, it sets an example for us, but also helps us in our digital, uh, crazy, distracted world. And so, uh, first of all, let's look at Jesus' rhythm of silence and solitude. I want to go to Matthew chapter 4. That's where we can begin. And actually, I'm going to begin in uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 13. It says here, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, uh, I need to baptize you, yet you come to me. But Jesus answered him, 
Let it be so now, for thus is, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then it says in 4 verse 1, And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so this is the, a watershed moment. It's the very beginning of, of the ministry of Jesus where he launches himself into the, into the public eye. And he goes to John to be baptized. And uh, he, uh, Jesus comes out of the Jordan River, you know, after the voice came from heaven and the, 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 uh, the, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Jesus goes out from his baptism, out of the water. What is the first thing that Jesus does? Before he does anything, it says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So uh, he, he comes out of the Jordan, and he doesn't sign up for a Twitter account. He doesn't write a blog. He doesn't uh, hold a rally or preach to thousands of people. The first thing Jesus does before he does anything in ministry is he goes straight into the wilderness. Now, the word for wilderness is the Greek word eremos. Can we all say that together? Eremos, yes. And uh, it is a wide array of meaning in, in Greek. So um, it could mean wilderness, like in the text here, or it could mean desert. Uh, it could mean deserted place or desolate place or solitary place or quiet place, or it could also mean the lonely place. And there are stories all throughout the gospel about Jesus' relationship to the Eremos. Now notice what it says here. Jesus, as soon as he comes out of, out of his baptism, it says the Spirit led him into the wilderness. And you ever wonder, why did the Spirit do that? I mean, why would the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? And sort of added on to that, like, why does the devil tempt him after 40 days in the wilderness? And, and if you're like me, I always thought of this as like the devil is an opportunist. You know, here's Jesus. He's been alone for 40 days. He's been fasting for 40 days. He's been in the wilderness for 40 days. And the, the devil comes to him at his weakest point. You know, the devil is an opportunist. It's just like the devil, isn't it, to come to us when we're at our most weak point. But I think I had it backwards because what this is actually teaching us is that the wilderness, the Aramos, is not the place of weakness but the place of strength. So in other words, uh, Jesus was at the height of his spiritual powers here when he's tempted by the devil. In other words, silence and solitude gave Jesus strength and spiritual power to face the tempter. This is, not what, this is not just a one-off thing that Jesus does. As you look throughout the Gospels, Jesus is always going into the desert. He's always going out in silence and solitude to receive strength. And so uh, let me show you another place. This is Mark chapter 1. Uh, Mark chapter 1, is a, it's a long chapter about Jesus' first day on the job as the Messiah. And uh, we studied this uh, several months ago, but Jesus is up early in the morning, and he's working, healing, uh, teaching, and preaching uh, all the way through the day, casting out demons, and he's up way into the night. And then the next morning, it says, at the very end of this day, this frenetic, busy day, it says that Jesus got up early to be alone. Let's look at verse 35, Mark 1, verse 35. It says, in rising up early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went into a desolate place, there where he prayed. And so he departed and went into the Eremos, it says. 
Now, if this were me and I was up late into the night healing and casting out demons from you guys, I would not get up early in the morning. I would sleep in. But Jesus sees fit after this long, long day to get up early in the morning to be in silence and solitude. He goes to the Eremos. And notice what happens there. As he's praying and alone, it says that Simon, who's sort of his PR manager at this point, it says, uh, and Simon and those who are with him searched for him. And they found him, and they said, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. Jesus, you're trending all over Twitter. You know, Twitter. Uh, you know, David Kimmel's on the phone, and Saturday Night Live wants an interview, and all these things. But Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And so Jesus comes out of this time of silence and solitude with incredible uh, uh, energy, with incredible focus, and with a sense of direction. And so this is something Jesus was doing with all the way through his life. He was, you know, doing ministry, and this was his rhythm uh, out in solitude, back into community again. Let me show you another place. Uh, this is Mark chapter 6, verse 33. It's just a few pages over. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse uh, 30, going all the way to 33. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all the things they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And so here, uh, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples to go into solitude as well. You know, here they are, they've had a busy, uh, you know, day, and they've, they've been out healing with Jesus and doing ministry with him. And they come back, and they're all excited. Look at all the things that we've done. Look at all the things that God has done in our lives. And they're super excited. And Jesus says, I know you're excited, but I need you to stop. Let's come away and let's rest a while. And it says, because they didn't even have time to eat. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt like this or if you've ever experienced this. You know, you're so busy and your life is so frenetic and you're doing so many things that you even forget to eat. Uh, the other morning, I, I woke up and, and uh, you know, got dressed and was ready to go out the door. And it was like, hey, did you have breakfast? Nope, forgot about that was thinking about all these other things in my day. And this is where the disciples are at. And so, so many of us, this is where we are at. But Jesus says, no, you need to stop and you need to come away and rest a while to a desolate place. Again, the word is eremos. And it says in verse 32, and they went away into a boat to a desolate place or to the eremos by themselves. And then it says in verse 33, I love this part. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So I love that. Here they're trying to get away. They get into the boat, and then the crowd realizes where they're going. And as soon as they go to this place where they're supposed to be alone, they get out of the boat, and suddenly everybody else is there. And if you're an introvert, you're like, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. <laughs> you know, if you're an extrovert, you're like, what's horrible about that? That would be awesome. You know, you go to be alone, and there's people there. Um, but here they are trying to get alone, and it's difficult. So I love the realism here. You know, I don't know if you've ever tried to get alone in solitude, but it's very difficult. It was difficult in Jesus' day. It's even more difficult in our day. You know, you've got kids that are pulling at you, and you've got, you know, Netflix that is calling your name, and you've got, uh, you know, all these things pulling you away from silence and solitude. But Jesus, Jesus is, says, look, it's It's hard. You try to get away, and sometimes it's very difficult, but Jesus still put that rhythm into his life. Let me give you another one here. There are so many of these. This was just simply part of Jesus' rhythm of life. But here's one in Luke 5. Uh, Luke 5, verses 15 to 16. 
It says, but, but now, even more, the report about him, this is Jesus, went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him, to be healed of their infirmities. But he would constantly withdraw to a desolate place to pray. And so here, this is part of Jesus' rhythm of life. He was constantly doing it. This was not a one-off thing. It was something that he did over and over again. The lonely place was a, was a part of Jesus' regular rhythm. Now, as, as people in the church uh, observed this about Jesus' life, uh, they developed a practice around it, and it's called silence and solitude. And let me give you a definition. Silence and solitude is intentional time in the quiet to be alone with God or to be alone with ourselves and God. Silence and solitude is intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. It's carving out space. And it's stopping the frenetic schedule. And it's making a, a rhythm in your life where you can be alone with yourself and God. Now there are two dimensions of silence and solitude. There's an external dimension and an internal dimension. And so first, the external dimension. This is just a time where you literally, um, you, you seek out literal silence and solitude in the external world. So you go to a place that it has very little or no chatter. You're getting away from people and ideas and noises, and you're creating external uh, peace and silence. And so this can be on the car. I, I know that there are many of you that you drive long distances to go to work. This could be a time in your car where you intentionally turn off the radio, you turn off the podcast, and you spend some moments in your, in your commute just with you and God. Silence and solitude. It can be a place. It could be a place in the woods. Many of you are hikers, and you like to be out there with the ticks and the bugs. Um, God bless you for being that way. And, but, but some of you are that way. And out there in the woods, when you're taking a walk or going for a hike, this could be a time for you to, to create space of silence and solitude, to be alone with yourself and God. For many of you, it could be a, a time period, maybe early in the morning, and Jesus got up early in the morning. And so often, it's early in the morning where there's nobody else around competing for your attention. It could be an early morning space that you create to maybe sit down with a journal or sit down to pray. Where, you're, uh, where, where there's nothing externally around for, to distract you. And so it's silence and solitude is external, but it's also internal. It's where you stop the internal chatter and the mental voices that won't shut up in your life. It's not only getting alone, but it's also uh, silencing the voices in your brain. In silence and solitude, we decompress from the noise and traffic and chaos and busyness and activity and nonstop stimulation of modern society. We slow down long enough, listen, to feel all the emotions we've been running away from. We face the good, the bad, and the ugly in our own heart before God. So you're creating space on the outside, but you're also creating space on the inside to be alone. And this is so crucial for the spiritual life. I mean, Jesus did it as a regular, re regular rhythm. And if Jesus had to do it, how much more do we need to do this? Uh, Richard Foster puts it this way, loneliness is inner emptiness, but solitude is inner fulfillment. And it's in those times of solitude 
where you experience inner fulfillment, where you're alone before God and separated from the world in the quiet. Now somebody asks, well, why do we need this? I mean, Jesus did it, and, and you're, Brent, you're telling us that we need to do it. Why do we need to do this? And maybe it's obvious to many of us. Maybe you're just sitting here like, yes, I know I need that. <laughs> I'm so busy, you don't even have to argue for this, Brent. But, but let me give you a few reasons why we need uh, silence and solitude, especially uh, to grow spiritually. Uh, first of all, silence and solitude is a recognition of the soul's need for rest. So in other words, your soul gets tired. And you were, your soul was not meant to go and go and go. And so many of you are exhausted and you don't even know it. You know, uh, I, I read one time that, you know, even you know, watching Netflix or being on the internet, that doesn't create rest. That actually creates more anxiety. And you need this in order to rest. A couple weeks I'm going on vacation to California Yes, amen. Praise the Lord. And the last time I went to California, it was four years ago. And I'd been here at, at Fellowship for one year at that point. And it was my first year as a lead pastor. I, I didn't have Lucas around, so I was preaching literally almost every week. And it was, it was anxiety-inducing, a lot of pressure, all that. And, uh, at, and, and to top it off, at the end of May, I got tick fever. <laughs> and I flew back to California. I had no idea how exhausted I was, but the first night, I slept 12 hours. The second night, I slept 12 hours. The third night, I slept 12 hours. And it was great. I would get up in the morning, and I would go outside and just sit in a chair and let the sun hit my face. And it was just so invigorating. And it's almost like I had no clue how exhausted my soul was. And there are many of you, you've been going and going and going. If it's not with life, it's with Facebook and Twitter and all this other stuff. You just need to rest. We need time where we can decompress and just sort of let God's love wash over us and just relax. The soul needs to be replenished. You were not meant to go and go. This is one reason why you need silence, solitude. Another reason why we need silence and solitude is it's the recognition that the soul needs reorientation. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that, you know, we are in this world, and sometimes this, the modern world can be toxic to us. There are ideas, there are values, there are all sorts of things swimming in the air of the modern world that affects you, and you don't even know it. You know, it's like the, the proverbial frog in the kettle. You know, you're, you're, you're being boiled in this culture, and you don't even know what's happening to you. And your culture is shaping you, and silence and solitude allows us to step back and sort of look at the culture and get perspective on things so that we're not drawn in. John Ortberg puts it this way. He says, American society is filled with ideas and values and pressures and temptations about success and security and comfort and happiness that we will not even notice unless we withdraw on occasion. And then he says this, solitude is the one place where we can gain freedom from the forces of society that will, other, will otherwise relentlessly mold and shape us. So do you remember uh, Jesus, when he came out of that time of solitude, he came out with a clarity and focus. He came out reoriented, understanding who he was and what the world was and where he was in the world, how he fit there. And this is what silence and solitude does for us. It reorients us. It reorients us. It focuses us. It gives us space and time to look back and see the big picture. 
I was talking to Bryce, our intern, this past week. I was telling him about this. And he said, Brent, I need that. And he says, I need that because so often, he said, I jump in and I feel like talking all the time. And he said, especially with politics. He said, you know, I have these opinions and I hear something on the news and I jump in and I start talking. And he says, maybe sometimes I need to just shut up. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever no- noticed this, but when, when you talk a lot, usually you sin more often. Anybody ever notice that? With, com- with more talk comes more sin. And silence and solitude lets us step back and stop, look at the culture, look at the world, and understand what's going on. It reorients us. But also I want you to notice that silence and solitude is the recognition of our soul's need for relationship. In other words, we were not designed for constant distraction, but for constant connection with the one who created us. And what happens is, is you start going and going and going and going, and, and, what hap- and, and, you, and you fail to connect with your creator, and he's what you need most, more than anything else. You know, you think, oh, I need more of this, or I need to go there, or I need to get this, or I need to be there. And what Jesus is showing us from his practice is that more than anything, we need to be connected to our creator. And it's silence and solitudes that creates the space for that connection. Henry Nouwen, who's a, who's a, not Henry I'm sorry, it was, um, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote a book on community called Life Together. And he says, uh, he says, those people who can't be alone, what am I saying here? I'm sorry, this, is, this hardly ever happens to me, but I'm just blanking right now. But he says, if, you're, if you could never be alone, then you, need, then you need to be there. That's where you need to be. And he says, if, you, if you're someone who's an introvert and you never can be in community, then that's what you need to be also. In other words, he's saying you need to be alone in a community. You need to go back and forth with God and with people, with God and with people. And there are some people that never retreat to be with God. And then there's another uh, author. Her name is Ruth Haley Barton. And this is going to be a long quote. It's going to come up on the screen. But she's riffing off of Bonhoeffer's little statement there. And she says this, if we do not take time to regularly enter into solitude and receive God's unconditional love as the constant source of our identity, calling and belonging, we become dangerous in the human community. Why? Because we will attempt to get from other human beings what only God can provide. We will demand that the community meet our needs for love, approval, and a sense of self and whatever else we may be missing. Then when the community disappoints us, is unable to meet our needs, or refuses our demands, we may become frustrated and take out our frustration on those around us through gossip, manipulation, attempts at controlling others. We may accuse the community of failing us and may even start projecting our inner lacks onto others in the community, blaming them for not meeting the needs that are not theirs to meet anyway. I hope you paid attention to that. What she's saying is that when you neglect the silence, when you, when you fail to create space to, be, to connect with God, you start looking for those things in other people and other things. So in other words, you start looking for what only God could give you in your work. Your work can't give that to you. 
You start looking for that connection that only God can give you, maybe in your children or maybe in your spouse. And she says, they can't, they can't meet that need. Only God can meet that need. As Augustine says, we were made for our creator and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. And so here's the question. Are you creating space to be alone with God? Are you connecting with him? You know, every relationship takes time and, 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 alone, and, and alone space, right? You know, you think about your, your spouse. And, you know, you can, you can be with your spouse for many, many years, and yet you're not creating that space for alone time, and therefore the relationship is shallow. And maybe you're together, but you're both watching Netflix, or maybe you're together, but you're together raising children, or maybe you're together, but you're just living in the same house. Are you connecting with your spouse? You need alone time to do that, and it's the same thing with God. You need solitude and silence in order to connect with your creator. And so this is why we need it. Now, uh, Ruth Haley Barton also says that there's almost a push-pull effect when it comes to silence and solitude. She says there's this draw on your heart. You want to be alone to be with God. You know you need retreat. You know you need reorientation, but you're also pushing away. It's almost like you're running from that silence. And what she says is that in order to really get alone with God and and for it to be revitalizing for you, you need to know that you are accepted by God. In other words, you need to know the gospel. You remember at the very beginning, Jesus, when he was baptized, what did the voice say from heaven? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And it was from this identity that he went into silence and solitude. And in order for silence and solitude to really do what it's supposed to do in your life, you need to know that you're accepted by God. You need to know that you're in the presence of someone that loves you. In in other words, you need to know the gospel. You know, there was someone that I knew, a guy that I knew in my life, and it was none of you guys, but he was, you know, part of my community, but, and we hung out together, but whenever we got alone together, it was super awkward. Have you ever had that experience? You know, you're, you get, you're fine with everybody else, but you get alone with this one person and it's super awkward. And the reason why it was awkward is I didn't really know the guy. And we didn't really have enough a, a relational bandwidth to have a conversation. And some of you don't have enough emo- a relational bandwidth with your creator to get alone with him. And so you avoid silence and solitude, and you push it away. But what Scripture says is you don't need to fear him. You are accepted by him. He says, you are my beloved son or or daughter in whom I am well pleased. And you can get alone with him. And when you're there, you're reminded of your identity. You're connecting with your creator, your heavenly father. And it revitalizes you. So this is silence and solitude. And then finally, let, let me give us some uh, how-tos with silence and solitude here. Because for many of us, uh, maybe this is not a practice that you do very often. Let me just give you a few little um, uh, suggestions here as we practice this. Uh, number one, I want you to remember your season of life, your personality, and your stage of life. Okay, so just remember that. You know, all of us are in different stages of life, and some of us have a lot of time to get alone, and it's really easy, and others of us are uh, nursing mothers. This is not me, but some of you. Um, others of us are working long hours, and so just remember, this is all about your stage of life. Your per- some of you are introverts, and this is really easy. 
Some of you are extroverts, and this is very difficult. So give yourself a lot of grace. Right? Don't get, this is not a legalistic thing where you're trying to earn points with God or uh, impress other people. Uh, th- just kind of understand that this is a, 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 it's a practice, and it's something we can grow in. Number two, make sure to schedule it into your week. Right? Silence and solitude doesn't happen by accident. It happens by scheduling it into your week. In other words, plan on periods of silence and solitude. And the way I think about this is like planning regular intervals throughout the day and then also planning extended periods of solitude. And so uh, throughout my day, I've started just kind of looking at those little spaces as opportunities to be alone with God. You know, so those times when I, you know, would normally look at my iPhone, just put it down and say, nope, I'm going to spend even three minutes here in the presence of my Heavenly Father. And maybe you do it when you first wake up, and maybe you do it for a little while during lunch, or maybe in the line at Kroger or whatever, uh, and maybe at night before you go to bed. So think about regular intervals, and then also think about extended periods of silence and solitude. And so maybe a couple hours at a time. Uh, maybe a, a whole day of silence and solitude. Uh, I told you, you know, when I went to California a year ago, just kind of sitting in the morning when everybody was gone and just spending a few hours just sitting on the back porch, letting the sun hit my face. Thirdly, anticipate distractions. You know, people will distract you, and things will distract you, and social media will distract you. Uh, this will happen. The moment you decide to get alone, expect just the barrage of noise and chatter to come rushing in, but resist it. And then I want you to imagine how life could be different. This is Andrew Sullivan. He's the guy who wrote the article I referenced at the beginning that I used to be a human being. This is, he says this in the article. He says, the reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. And then he says this, this is so good. If churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. In other words, he's saying this is an incredible resource that Christianity offers our culture. And if we could live lives with this rhythm of Jesus, of in the community, retreat to silence and solitude, and if we could be centered and we could be reoriented and we could be connected to God, imagine what a difference we could make in our city. Imagine how life could be different. And so here's the uh, second practice that we're looking at here, the second habit. Uh, are we all game to do this? You could talk back. All right, I'm done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, this teaching about Jesus and about um, the rhythm in his life of, of the aremos, of the lonely place, getting away into solitude. And God, I know that many of us here uh, this morning, this might sound like exactly the thing that we need. And God, we want to recognize that it is. God, I pray you'd help us, Lord, to to get that rhythm into our own lives. I pray that in this digital generation, in this world where people are living in constant distraction, Lord, that we might be people that are connected and present. 
present to ourselves, present to other people, and present, most importantly, to you. Lord, quiet our hearts. Father, we pray you'd help us to understand that our identity is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Father, we pray that we would live out of a place of spiritual strength that comes from being alone with you. And we pray you'd help us to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.